Welcome to the Yogi MD podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. Today, I would like to welcome Dr. Nusha Niv, clinical psychologist, founder of the Mind Matters Institute, National Education Director for the VA Mental Health Centers of Excellence, and a research psychologist at UCLA. Dr. Niv joins us today to talk about anxiety. In an episode to follow, she will join us again to talk about forgiveness. Thank you, Dr. Niv, for being on the show today. Uh, Welcome, and I am thrilled to have you uh, share today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Can you please tell us what you do and why you do it? Uh, well, I wear a few different hats. I, as the uh, National Education Director for Department of Veterans Affairs Mental Health Centers of Excellence, it's a very long title. <laughs> <laughs> I'm primarily an educator in mental health. My job is to educate, obviously, veterans, their family members, the general public, policymakers. Um, And then a big part of that is educating VA clinicians themselves and helping them be up to date on the most current evidence-based practices. Um, So my job is really to bridge that research to applied work and make sure everybody knows what's happening in research. And how long have you been doing this? So as the director of my particular center for over 10 years, uh, in terms of the national role, that happened, I guess, in spring. Uh, so that's fairly new. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a big change. So that's been fun. Um, and then I started my own business, which uh, the Mind Matters Institute, which really focuses on mental health and families. Um, and I did that because there's so much research showing how important families are in supporting people in recovery through mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's lots of evidence-based practices focused on families, but very few places actually offer it for adults. Like there's tons of things for kids, mm. but there was this real gap in availability of services. So that's a newer project that we're just getting started and hopefully we'll have our first uh, family program available online in January. Wonderful. What To back up just a little bit, what got you interested in pursuing a career in mental health? It was an accident. (laughs) (laughs) I was at UCLA and I got, I had gone into law school my whole life, I wanted to be a lawyer. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, so I got into law school, and uh, my last uh, quarter at UCLA as an undergrad, I took a class on schizophrenia with a man named uh, Michael Goldstein, who was world-renowned researcher in um, family work with schizophrenia and, and with bipolar disorder. And I just, if it's possible, I became fascinated with the disorder and I just, the idea of psychosis in general, I just found so interesting. So I deferred law school enrollment for a year to explore this interest with him and ended up working for him and loved it. And so went a different path and here we are. That is a happy accident. (laughs) That's wonderful. I think my stress level is probably a little lower than it had I been a lawyer. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. I would have to agree. 
let's talk about anxiety. That's really what I'm curious about for this episode. This is a word that's thrown around in the public now. It's very popular. Um, it's a hot button issue. But I don't think when people say I'm anxious, there's necessarily an understanding around what that means. So I really want to pick your brain about what clinical anxiety is and, and situate, maybe it's a situational thing. So, you know, when people use the word anxiety, anxiety as a disorder is actually many different disorders. Mm -hmm. So, like, the most common ones would be uh, like panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, then we have social phobia, or what do they call it now? Uh, social anxiety disorder. They changed mm. the name on me. <laughs> okay. Uh, there are specific phobias, so people who are afraid of particular things or situations. Um, PTSD would be considered an anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. it, among children, separation anxiety. So when we talk about anxiety, it really kind of depends which of these we're talking about in relation to what specific symptoms. But I think most people, when they talk about anxiety, they're really talking about anxieties made up of a few components, right? There's the physical part, the cognitive part, and then this behavioral part. And when people say they're anxious, usually they're referring to that physical part, right? Their heart's racing, mm -hmm. their breathing, palms may be sweaty or cold or hot. They're having physical symptoms. Uh, the cognitive part, depending on what the fear, what the feared thing is, is this fear of something bad happening. So for someone who has social anxiety, it might be a fear of embarrassing themselves, um, you know, belief that they're going to be an embarrassment or do something wrong in public or be shamed in public um, or someone who's afraid of flying, that the plane's going to crash. Or, mm -hmm. you know, so it really depends on what the feared situation is. And then, you know, for some people for like generalized anxiety disorder, it's very much just a general worry. Like I'm just worried about everything. So that, but there's this cognitive component to it, right? There's okay. ruminating on worry. And then there's the behavioral component. Not, not all uh, anxiety disorders have this behavioral component, but the, most of them do, which is they avoid whatever's feared. Right? So in agoraphobia, for example, they might avoid going outside. Mm -hmm. They might avoid crowds. If I'm afraid of bridges, I'm going to avoid bridges. If I have a social phobia, I'm going to avoid social situations. So where is the line between having a fear of something or being anxious or maybe just having physical symptoms, say, because here's an example, sure. I'm going to give a speech or I'm going to conduct an interview. <laughs> so, so I'm sweating <laughs> or <laughs> thank you. <laughs> or my heart is racing or, but it's normal to, to feel that way because I'm human and I care, so I want things to go well versus where it's debilitating and it's actually a clinical disorder. Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, some stress, some anxiety is actually good for us. Mm -hmm. We were made to experience some anxiety. In fact, if we feel no anxiety, let's say in me preparing for this interview or you doing this interview, if neither of us felt any anxiety, this interview would not go so well, right? Because neither of us would be prepared in any way. We wouldn't care. Um, but so, so we need some anxiety to enhance our performance. That's just the way it works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, so you don't want too little anxiety. Some anxiety is good at the point at which it becomes too much. That's when it becomes problematic. So 
if my heart is racing so, you know, if I'm having so many physical symptoms that I can't actually sit here and talk to you, now it's actually interfering. Um, so, so when we talk about where it goes into the clinical realm, we're talking about symptom severity, you know, how, how severe are these symptoms, um, frequency, you know, so even if I'm just having mild or moderate symptoms, but I'm having them all the time, that mm. can be stressing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there has to be some sort of functional component. Like, is it actually interfering with something? It has to interfere with something. Is it interfering with my work, with my relationships, with my ability to go to a school, with my ability for self-care? At that point at which you have some interference or serious distress, we put it in the clinical category. That makes a lot of sense. What you're saying is really important for people to understand is that some anxiety is not only completely normal, but it's beneficial. Mm -hmm. What is the prevalence of anxiety clinically? As far as I know, the last uh, kind of population studies that were done were done in the early 2000s, and these are large-scale surveys. One of them came out of Harvard. It's a national comorbidity study, mm-hmm. and this was a survey of adults in the U.S., and they found that about 19 or 20% of adults had an anxiety disorder, One of you know any of these anxiety disorders, had it at the time, in the past year, I should say, in, in the year before the interview. Um, and what they found that was about a third of adults in the country had had an anxiety disorder sometime in their lifetime. So that's pretty high, like a third of adults in the U.S. Absolutely. That's a, that's a lot. At the same time, around the same time, there was a study done, very similar study looking at mental health disorders among adolescents. And they found very similar things, that it was about a third of adolescents um, ages 13 to 18 had had an anxiety disorder in their lifetime. So over a lifetime, it looks like about a third of us will have these difficulties. Was there a gender difference? There, there is a de- gender difference. Uh, pretty much across all studies, they find that women tend to have higher rates of higher rates of anxiety. So in like panic disorder, I know it's women are more likely, twice as likely to have it as men. Across all genders, I, in the past year prevalence in that study, it was 24% of females versus 14% of males. Are there any explanations as to why that difference exists? You know, part of it might be uh, hormonal. There's there's mm. that hypothesis that part of it's hormonal. Part of it could be just our um, kind of social acceptance of how we talk about anxiety. You know, women might be more likely to acknowledge some of these symptoms and call it anxiety or call it how we diagnose it. Whereas I think this this notion that men must be strong and not talk about these weaknesses in this way might be preventing them from acknowledging um, their anxiety. Does anxiety tend to go hand in hand with depression? Absolutely. That they absolutely go hand in hand. And that's part of why it makes it hard to get treatment. Like that becomes one of the barriers to treatment. And if I'm feeling really anxious and may have um, concerns about how the doctor or others are going to view me. So I, you know, I already have all this, these anxious thoughts, but now I'm depressed on top of it. So I'm lacking motivation. Mm. I'm lacking energy. I'm lacking the will to kind of, you know, the hopefulness needed to get treatment. You know, the depression is, there's a high comorbidity between the two disorders and it's definitely uh, leads to one of the barriers in getting treatment. 
So you mentioned when you were talking about the prevalence of anxiety disorder in the population being up to one third, that it's in our lifetimes. What can people do to get help so that it's not a permanent condition? So that's a great question. And there's, uh, in terms of treatment, then two, there's various types of treatment. But when we talk about evidence-based treatments, there's a couple of them. So one is medication and one is cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. So in terms of medication, the antidepressants actually seem to be the most useful class of medication to treat anxiety disorders, which is helpful because if you're already depressed, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah attack both disorders with one medication. Mm-hmm. But you know, I don't I don't know if that's the place to start. Like that's not if you have mild anxiety, you don't need to go on medication. But cognitive behavioral therapy is really helpful in that regard because it helps you so it it addresses both the cognitive piece of the disorder and the behavioral piece of the disorder. So the cognitive piece would be really examining your thoughts and your beliefs that are leading to anxiety because most of us like all of us have some cognitive distortions and cognitive distortions are, you know, essentially false yes. beliefs. Mm-hmm. But people who have anxiety and depression tend to do it more often and they really believe it. They cling on to these false beliefs. Can you and- give an example? I'm very familiar with cognitive distortions. I talk about it in some of my classes. So can you elaborate a little bit? Sure, sure. So, you know, there's there's various kinds. It's like, for example, all or nothing thinking. Mm-hmm would be an example, um, catastrophizing. So, mm-hmm. so an example of catastrophizing would be, you know, like he didn't want to go on a date with me. I'm going to be alone forever, <laughs> you know? um, which is probably not likely to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, for someone in school, it could be like, I got a C on this test. I'm never going to get into graduate school. Uh, so, so this kind of taking something, I don't want to call it small, um, but some something and blowing it up to make sure. it far darker and more ominous and hopelessness, you know, lacking hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we do with the cognitive therapy part, therapy part of it is really look at that t- thought and evaluate it. You know, what are the odds that that's actually going to happen? What uh, what are other outcomes that could happen? Uh, so it makes the person really question their thinking, not to. Um, not to doubt themselves, but but to evaluate how accurate their thinking is. So that's the cognitive portion of it. And then mm-hmm. the behavioral portion of it for anxiety is really exposure therapy. Uh, people mm-hmm. who are fearful of something, mm-hmm. naturally, we avoid that thing. That's pretty, you know, that's yeah, human nature. Sure. Um, but that actually perpetuates the fear cycle, the anxiety cycle. Uh, so the behavioral component of it is really getting people uh, to sit with the anxiety and learn they can tolerate it. And over time, their anxiety in that situation will will decrease. Um, the other part of treatment in CBT is learning relaxation skills. So it'll be other breathing exercises or muscle relaxation. There's some sort of relaxation training generally part of cognitive behavioral therapy. So it would seem that the medication part is a little bit easier, isn't it? It's, it's easier for people to say, let me pop the pill instead of mm-hmm. doing the hard work of the cognitive behavioral therapy. 
Um, I think it's a couple reasons. So, you know, one of the, the there are a lot of barriers to getting mental health help. Hmm. Um, and I, you know, I don't know if you want to get into those. We can, uh, but but the kind of result of all those barriers to getting mental health help mm-hmm. is that people tend to go to their general practitioner for depression and or anxiety. Um, and their general practitioner, their primary care practitioner, isn't trained. You know, most most doctors are not trained in mental health problems. Or right, how to- because it's a specialty. There's a separate specialty. We receive training for something specific. That's right. That's right. So, but what do they know? They know that they can prescribe an anti, you know, an SSRI, an antidepressant for treatment of anxiety. So because most depression and most anxiety gets treated in primary care, that medication tends to become the first um, treatment, line of treatment. But it's a Band-Aid, isn't it? It is. You know, it, 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 not always. It can certainly help people get through trying times. So if you're having a really stressful life event, let's say you're not really prone to anxiety. That's, you know, that's not, you don't have a history of it, but you're going through a really stressful period. You're that's having fair. a life stressor. Someone that's died, fair. You know, you lost your job. Mm-hmm. Something really kind of acute has happened. Mm-hmm. Medication can be really helpful in getting you through that period. Mm-hmm. But if you are prone to getting to being anxious, mm-hmm. right, it's not going to resolve the kind of inaccurate thinking that leads to anxiety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's not to say it's not useful in that regard, too. Right. So so what I tell people who come to me is if your anxiety is in the mild to moderate range, I think CBT alone is useful, right? Because it teaches you skills. It teaches you the coping skills. It teaches you, you know, all the cognitive and behavioral skills we talked about. Sure. Um, it, it will be, it could be adequate treatment. If your anxiety is in the moderate to severe range, I actually always recommend my patients at least get evaluated by a psychiatrist. And the reason for that is if their anxiety is really high, they're not able to show up in my office and do the work that I need them to do in cognitive behavioral therapy. CBT is a very active treatment. Mm-hmm. Every session, you know, they meet me once a week, but then I give them homework and mm-hmm. they need to be working on things outside of the session. Mm-hmm. If you're too anxious to do that work, you're not going to benefit from CBT. I think if you simply take the the road of medication only, and you don't pursue the cognitive behavioral therapy, then you're shortchanging yourself because you're not necessarily learning the skills that are necessary to cope long term with your symptoms and with the behavior that you're exhibiting from because of the anxiety. That's right. So it'll, it'll change, um, you you know, it'll certainly affect your physical symptoms and even your thinking in the short term. But then if you go off the medication, you haven't learned the coping skills. Um, you haven't learned any of the skills Mm -hmm. really to address that anxiety down the road. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, if it's a situational anxiety, like someone died and now I'm feeling really anxious, but I don't usually have ex- symptoms of anxiety, the medication can be enough to get you through that time. And then, sure. as, you know, so, so there, there are times when medication alone is completely appropriate. Sure. What would preclude a person from re- getting therapy, from getting help? What type of reasons do you see? 
getting help first requires someone to acknowledge that there there is a problem. Um, and the challenge there is that the vast majority of people, their understanding and their like, recognition of anxiety symptoms is, is actually pretty poor. Uh, there, was, there was a study published, I want to say about 10 years ago, uh, that looked at the health literacy. And what mm. they did was they, they presented these case studies of people presenting with various anxiety disorders and asked the general lay public to to do you know do they identify these disorders in reading this description and what they found was that there are a couple disorders that people tended to recognize really well so like obsessive compulsive disorder we understand right uh, people tend to understand that social phobias people tended to understand most people recognize those symptoms but like less than half of participants recognize other really common anxiety disorders like panic disorder and generalized mm. anxiety disorder. And it was something like less than 10% recognized other anxiety disorders that might be less common. So part of it is our health literacy around mental health issues okay. is really bad. Mm. We don't talk about it in school, right? We talk no. about you should eat maybe, you know, you, you know it, what you know, nutrition to some extent. <laughs> <laughs> You know the importance of exercise. Oh, yeah, you know, whatever they is, what it, the health issues they discuss in school, but mental health is rarely covered in that. So that's the first barrier to care. Another reason people don't get help in anxiety is because they're scared. I mean, the anxiety symptoms themselves prevent them from getting treatment. Mm. So, for example, you have someone who has agoraphobia, so they have the fear of going out being in a crowd, waiting in line, using public transportation. Going out is one of their core symptoms. So that person's not very likely to go out and get help. We talked about the role of depression earlier. So mm -hmm. someone who, and anxiety and depression go hand in hand. So someone who has depression is going to probably have less motivation, less energy to get out and get treatment. Sure. So those are kind of all the things that are barriers. I'm sure there's more, but some of the barriers that happen before someone even decides to go get help. Once they decide to go get help, there's a whole host of problems. The most common ones being concerns about the cost, you know, not having insurance, not knowing where to go, wait times, like they finally getting an appointment and now they have to wait. Um, so these are pretty serious, serious uh, barriers. And what we didn't talk about, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and then finding the right match too. Just like anything else, if you, this is something I talk to my students sometimes, if you're not comfortable with your doctor, then that's not the right doctor for you. It doesn't mean that that's a bad doctor. It's, that's just not your doctor. So it yeah. does take time to find the correct match as well. Yeah, that's really important. You know, there's there's so much data that shows, you know, the, what type of therapy the therapist is doing with you is important. Mm -hmm. But even a bigger predictor of outcomes than the actual modality they're using is your connection with the therapist. Does the therapist show empathy? Does the therapist build rapport with you? These are such key factors to outcomes. And really, you know, there, there are factors to you staying in treatment. So if you're not connecting with someone, you're not going to stay in treatment and get through it and do the work that's needed. Absolutely, because you're yeah. so vulnerable and you really need to be able to feel safe 
to allow that vulnerability not to be a barrier to do the hard work that's necessary. Yeah. Well, particularly in, in, in um, anxiety, just like we talked about before, as a, there's a lot of social stigma, hmm. right? So there, these folks already have concerns. They're already hmm. viewing the world as a not safe place. So now you're adding these, um, you know, potential beliefs that might be barriers, such as like, um, you know, I'm embarrassed to talk to others, mm. or I'm worried about what they might think of me. They're going to judge me. Mm. And so there's social stigma barriers as well. Mm-hmm. So if you can't overcome that with that therapist, if that therapist can't build enough rapport with you to where you can make yourself vulnerable, you're not going to follow through. Do you think it's changing with our generations now? I think people are becoming more accepting of mental health not being something to be so ashamed of? Yes and yes and no. It, it is definitely improved. You know, there, we talk about it more, in particularly, um, to, I'm in a, a mom, you know, lots of moms groups because I'm a mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I find in my moms groups, it is talked about very openly, which is great. Um, but the reality is that while it's changing, it's not completely gone. Um, there's a lot of research that shows that most people still hold pretty negative attitudes towards people with mental health problems in general. Mm. Um, and this is particularly true if they think that people with mental health, with mental illness are violent or can harm them. And the sad part is that these beliefs are not just among the late public, the general public, these beliefs are actually pretty strong among healthcare providers and even some mental health care providers. The, the findings are pretty consistent. If you present with a mental illness, you're likely to get less time with the doctor and lower quality of care. On that depressing note. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How would you counsel someone to seek help? That's a hard question because this is country is really lacking in good quality and available mental health care. Uh, I would say it really depends on your individual financial situation to mm-hmm. a large extent. Mm-hmm. So if you have insurance, I would start there. Uh, look into what is available through your insurance. Ideally, there be uh, either psychiatrists or psychologists or social workers available through that. If I don't have insurance, mm-hmm. then my options become either paying out of pocket entirely, which can be expensive. Sure. You know, in LA, for example, the average can cost 200 to $400 an hour, uh, which is a lot when you yes. show up week after week. Mm-hmm. If the finances aren't available for that kind of spending, uh, you, there are a few different options. If you can, you can go through your local department of mental health uh, if you are a veteran, obviously the Veterans mm-hmm. Administration would be a great step. So mm-hmm. you can find facilities at va.gov. If you're looking for providers in your community, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, they have a treatment locator on their website. The other path that I recommend for people who are looking for treatment on a sliding scale is look to see if there are any social work or psychology training programs near you, right? So most colleges, if if there's a clinical psychology program, they have to train their students 
And so they usually end up having a psychology clinic that where you would see a trainee, you would see a graduate student who's being supervised yes. by a licensed psychologist. But this is a way to get much cheaper treatment. And one of the things I, I would encourage people is to get help before you think you need help. We let ourselves get really ill before we take care of ourselves, right? So at the but point we're supposed which, to be so strong. We're supposed to be able to endure whatever and just suck it up, right? Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> but there's easier path. <laughs> <laughs> Why on earth would we be nice to ourselves and actually take care of ourselves before we're in trouble, especially women? It, especially women, especially women, particularly I mean, what we didn't talk about at all um, is postpartum anxiety, mm. um, which is <laughs> such a huge problem. And so particularly for women who are in that postpartum period, they're, you know, having a baby is so overwhelming and time consuming and tiring. The last thing you think to deal with is your, your anxiety and depression, which are very common in the year postpartum. Simply the act of making an appointment and going in and just ha even having an assessment mm -hmm. that has an impact on outcomes because that becomes people taking control of that situation. Yes. Right. And that in itself can alleviate anxiety. Perfectly said. Thank you so very much. You're welcome. And now it's time for practical tips. Mind, body and spirit tip. Who doesn't love the movie Grease? Boy meets girl. They both struggle to fit in together amongst their friends. But in the end, the girl chooses to become the vixen everybody wants to see. Should you sacrifice your self-care based on public perception? You're the boss of taking care of you. Thanks for being here. See you next time.